episode of the Women in Agile podcast, sponsored by Scrum.org. I'm your host for this episode, Leslie Morse, and I'm excited for you to hear this conversation with Andy Golding. I was first exposed to Andy when I attended the Gladwell Academy Agile Coach Conference in the Netherlands in June of 2023, and was really... uh, engaged and inspired and invited to think about aspects of complexity in very different ways than I had before. I thought the metaphors she used were powerful and she asked really great thought-provoking questions. Um, So in this conversation, you're going to hear us explore dimensions of the talk that she did at that conference, which was titled Meeting Complexity with Simplicity. Her passion is really about creating more amazing workspaces, and we touch on a lot of different dynamics of that in this conversation. So before you listen, here's just a little bit more about Andy. She believes that the headspace and the heart space of human beings is the most untapped natural asset on the planet. As a leadership development and people practices specialist, she helps companies design work environments and employee experiences that tap into the innate brilliance of human beings. She is a published author and a TEDx speaker. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, Andy. Thanks for joining us for an episode. Thank you for having me. It's awesome to be here. I am excited. We I got to see you talk uh, a session called uh, Meeting Complexity with Simplicity at the Agile Coach Conference um, by Gladwell Academy in June uh, in Netherlands and was really taken with a couple of the things that you brought up in that that really just refocused me on some stuff that's important. So I'm really excited to get to share all of that with listeners today. And let's help them get to know you a little bit better. You're a like workplace experience and employee experience expert. What led you to this area of work? So how I came to be an employee experience specialist is my first job sucked. It was an awful experience. It was a terrible place to go to every single day. And I couldn't reconcile that. I was 18 years old at the time, which is important context. And I couldn't reconcile that this was life now. That's now you must resent the reason you have to get out of bed every morning. And that was one of the first major catalysts for me. And secondly, I once I started working, I had started a blog looking at this employee experience design, company culture stuff, because back then all that it was was just kind of these concepts floating around. And I was writing an article for my blog one day and I Googled my job makes me. And I do not remember what I was trying to say, what I was trying to search for, but the autocomplete prompts that Google gave me or Google served me with my job makes me were things like, my job makes me sick, my job makes me depressed and anxious, my job makes me miserable, my job makes me cry. And what that said to me was so many other people have searched these phrases that we have a very, very serious problem with the experience that human beings are having at work. And so I sat there staring at those autocomplete prompts, which unfortunately today almost a decade later are much the same so if you type my job makes me into google and look at what google tries to complete your sentence with you'll see much of what i just shared um and i kind of made it my mission to change that in any way shape or form that i could just change the experience that human beings are having at work 
Yeah, I remember you talking a little bit about that at the conference and thinking uh, it's so easy to sort of fall victim to the company that we're in. Like we're just a cog in the machine and really thinking of it in that very like industrial way when at the end of the day, the company is nothing more than the people, right? Um, I think you may have even talked about how like the company itself is nothing more than a piece of paper filed in some office that registers it as an entity, but without the people, there is no, no culture. And so what is our own personal human responsibility to show up and treat each other in different ways to impact some of those shifts as well? Um, what, where do you see that line between our own individual personal accountability and the structure of the organization and how the ability to change all of that plays together? I mean, firstly, I completely agree. A company is nothing more. A company is just a name. It's a fictional being. A company is the sum of its human's dedication and care and passion. And when those people are being switched on and grown at work, the company receives the company receives amazing benefits as a result. When those people are being switched off and depleted, they don't. And I also think that as employees, we don't stop being human beings. And we get to decide, firstly, how much power the company has over the way we show up, the way we behave, how we behave to other people. Um, and we also get to not give up our power in terms of how we want to work, how what's important to us, what matters to us, because all that a company is is a group of human beings who are craving, creating, and responding to human moments all of the time. And, you know, I, I used to do a keynote, and the way I would always open the keynote would be, good morning, my fellow architects. And invariably the room would kind of just blink at me in awkward silence being like, oh, she's at the wrong conference, that's awkward. <laughs> but in actual fact, I think that all of us are architects of experience. We're constantly creating experience for the people that we lead and work with on a daily basis. And we get to decide, are we switching people on or are we switching people off? And obviously we want to always be erring on the side of creating great experiences for people because that's how we create magic. That's how companies get great results. That's where innovation, agility, great thinking, passion, dedication, uh, discretionary effort. That's where all of that comes from, from human beings being ignited and um, connected. Yeah. Yeah. I'm reminded of a conversation I had what I'll call in my first real job because I'd had a startup in college and then went and worked in digital marketing for, for me at that time, what was a very large utility here in the United States. And my boss told me once after this kerfuffle had happened with some marketing content that was regulated, uh, said, in three years, nobody's going to remember who messed up that bill insert or why it actually caused an issue. What people are going to remember is how they feel at the end of the day and how we all treat each other and interact when those kind of things happen. And that is such a salient reminder, like we are at choice and we have the agency for how we show up and treat other be people and 
keep humanity in the forefront of our interactions with others because that's how legacy is created in my mind. Um, so thank you for having that experience of calling you to this work because I think for us as Agilists, we need to create the environments where teams succeed and these humane environments are a big piece of it. It's the only way to get sustainable magic from people. Yeah. Like yeah. long-term, sustainable, incredible work. You know, yes, you can get great work from people in the short term with amazing perks and benefits, but over the long term, it's unsustainable. You know, uh, you can pay people as much as you want. I think a lot of people think that Google achieved what Google achieved because they had these super cool offices and food and nap pods and slides and all of these amazing things. And I guarantee you that if Google had led and built their business the exact same way, but in a warehouse, they probably would have had almost the same results because it wasn't the niceties on the peripheral that got magic from people. It was the way that they structured their business, the way that people were led, the way people were given space to go and think and be brilliant, do amazing things. Um, companies go through such rigorous hiring processes and vetting processes to hire brilliant humans to then shove them in boxes and say, please don't think. And I don't think that that's ever done with intention, but I think the way that we lead, the way that we show up, the way that we treat people creates that we put them in boxes, we shut them down and we lose access to their brilliance. Yeah, it's the, the challenge of really being in a post-industrial world from a knowledge worker perspective, yet so much of our on paper organizational structures and so many of our leaders were built through companies with industrialized mindsets that we haven't bro broken free from those trappings yet. And so we're living in this state of constant change and difficulty, and we're trying to use process and procedure to, to control all of that when the reality is the, um, we need to be harnessing all of that full human potential. And it takes different structures and ways of working, which um, there's a couple other things I normally ask guests, but I just wanna run with this thread because it, we'll cover those things later. You opened your talk at the conference about, um, with the story of firefighters um, that were, you know, battling a blaze on a ridge and the wind shifted and like, they were gonna die. The, the fire was coming for them and they started running and they were encouraging each other to drop all of their tools because the weight of all of that stuff prevented them from running fast enough to potentially escape death. And some people dropped their tools and some people did not. It was a really salient way to remind us that, you know, not everything needs a hammer <laughs> when the hammer is the thing we might use most often. What was it for you that that story kind of brought to life in terms of the importance of being comfortable dropping the tools that you have today? 
Well, I think what you've just shared with the kind of leading in a post-industrial world and the way that we lead and manage our businesses, we know most of it is based on legacy practices and we only use them because that's what we know. And often we don't train leaders to lead in ways other than this. So what can we do but perpetuate what we know? And I think the world of work finds itself at such an interesting juncture now because one thing that the pandemic did was open up massively, it just cracked open this conversation of different ways of working, different ways of building businesses and different ways of leading and managing. And so coming back to the firefighters, I think the, and, and those firefighter stories are true. The one was the Manfred Gulf fire. There was another one in 1969. I think the Manfred Gulf fire was, I, I forget the year at this point, um, but, of the 15 firefighters on the ridge that day, only two survived. And they were the only two who dropped their tools and sprinted over the ridge to safety. And for me, the, the massive resonance and the thing in kind of blinking, flashing lights that I'm seeing when I'm reading the story is, this is the world of work. The world of work mm. is changing and we need to know what tools to drop in order to survive. You know, just because we've been carrying, on to, carrying these things and holding on to them for so long, they may not actually be serving us. And it's a very hard thing to let ourselves, give ourselves permission to let go of the thing that we've always held close and always been so convinced is, this is the thing that keeps me afloat or this is my magic, but maybe it's not. Yeah, there's something about business strategy in this for me. If we say like the, the world is changing, the world like from a global economic perspective and um, what people are looking for in terms of uh, fulfilling work environment, like a, like a fulfilling career, and if we look, you know, out of any given fifteen companies, you know, only two of them are going to make it over the ridge of this type of fire that's coming to engulf today's workplaces we know it. Um, the only those organizations that are willing to truly change and do things differently are going to be the ones that survive. And it just, it's so hard. Why, why in your mind is that so hard? Because we're resistant to change. Uh, change is hard, change is uncomfortable, change is frustrating. And I think we're wired in a lot of ways to continue doing what we know. We're we're almost biased to continue doing what we know uh, because it's more comfortable. We get really, really comfortable in that. It frustrates me massively, but uh, I'm just as human as, as any, I'm just as human as anybody else. So I fall into that same trap. Yeah. Where, where do we draw the line between embracing change as a normal thing that is just happening versus a change is bad like the fire the, the wind changed the fire is coming to get us change bad scary gotta do something right your fear and everything kicks in versus the normal state of change like emergency change versus normal state of change i think of it um more is uh, change is not something we can manage. Change is something we need to become fluent in. 
So <laughs> when you are in the same way, we're fluent with language, right? So yeah. what is it in, um, in the way you approach employee experience that uh, helps create more of that in the world, do you think? I love that statement that we need to become fluent in change. I'm just going to put that out there. Um, <laughs> that is awesome. I may, I may well start using that because I completely agree with you. We need to become fluent in change. Um, what I'm trying to think of, there, there was, there was a couple of questions there. So let me ask you this. What, where, where do you particularly want to go of, because there was two questions in there. Yeah, and I honestly, I don't even know as though I really remember the questions as much as it is. It's more of like, what's when you think of that concept, I guess, right, that was what was alive for you. Like, oh, you're right. It is about the fluency. Like, what is important about that? Why? What do you think we need to do for that shift? One of the first things I think we need to do is to let go and uh, give ourselves permission to change our minds. Um, so I used to serve on the board of my local sports club and we were once having this raging debate, some of us on the left, some of us on the right going at it. And one of the guys arguing his point and he's hammering away at his point and suddenly he stops, he's like mid sentence stops and he's like, Oh, hold on. I've changed my mind and current and starts arguing for the other side. And now the rest of us were just kind of sitting there dumbfounded, like, huh, what's happening? And he looks at us and this, I will never forget. He looks at us and he says, what? I'm allowed to change my mind. And that for me was like this kind of facepalm moment of, duh, of course you're allowed to change your mind. It's your mind. Yeah. And I think that in, becoming fluent in change, giving ourselves permission to change our minds is the absolute starting point. Because if we can't change our minds about dropping our tools and sprinting over the ridge to safety, if we can't change our minds about how we're going to show up and treat people, if we can't change our minds about the fact that the world of work has changed, then we're stuck. Yeah. And changing your mind can come across as um, admitting you were wrong in the past. Yes. And that is scary, especially for leaders. Like I think about a product owner who's accountable for maximizing value, right? You Product owners should be changing their mind all the time because they learned something or we as a, a team learned something that will help us maximize value. Like we thought this was the feature set we needed to build to achieve our goal. Actually, that was wrong. Yeah. And there's so much pressure to never be wrong or have to admit that you were wrong often in these industrialized cultures. Um, I guess, how does that, I, you talked your talk was meeting complexity with simplicity the complexity of emotionally and culturally admitting you are wrong what simplicity do you find meets that the best i think that admitting you were wrong is fantastic and i think that because it means you had a go you're fully committed 
to trying something, to going down a road, and you were like, eh, whoops, this didn't work, let's go in a different direction. Because by admitting you were wrong, it proves that you tried. So you didn't just kind of hang around in this like moat of quicksand where nothing's happening because you're indecisive. I think that being able to admit that you were wrong or that you messed up or that you made a mistake is an immense privilege because you tried, you had a go. So yes, there's a lot of culture around the taboo of being wrong and making mistakes. I call bull on that, to be quite frank, because the Google Maps team ran into lots of walls and made lots of mistakes in building Google Maps. The Uber team definitely ran into walls and made mistakes in building Uber. Airbnb, all of the biggest companies, all of the smallest companies, all of the meaningful companies made massive mistakes along the way. In fact, the coolest companies that I've worked with have messed up countless times along the road. So it's an immense privilege to be able to admit that you were wrong, you made a mistake. Um, and I think that we should start wearing that like a badge of honor. I mean, if I look at, I could, I could try and count all of the times that I've made immense mistakes in my career and they've all led to better outcomes. Yeah. Because with every mistake, may not come outcome success, but comes a bucket load of learning. Yeah. The, um, for whatever reason in this moment, the word privilege is really ringing. Like it was like that word was highlighted in yellow for me every time you said it. And it kind of brings us back like women in agile is here about like advancing greater equity in the workplace where we all have the same privilege, right? And the reality is in the workplace, we don't. So for you, as a woman, we might be naturally more inclined to be like, oh, that was wrong and move on. But sometimes maybe our cultures don't afford us the privilege of saying we're wrong or other marginalized voices and people and organizations. So how do you see, um, those sort of dynamics playing into the ability to create these kind of more humane workplaces that we all need. So does our culture not afford us the opportunity to admit that we were wrong or have we decided that we don't get to admit it? And so pause there. Can you say that one more time? Sure. Um, has our culture, decided that we don't have the opportunity to admit that we were wrong or have we decided that we don't get the opportunity to admit that we were wrong that's such a powerful question like it makes me think of all the bias that was in what i just said about do we or like what, what assumptions am i making in that statement of we don't have the privilege or do some of us not yeah and but the thing is, I think you're not the only one carrying that. I think we're all carrying some of that bias as women in this field because there's a double-sided, a double -sided, um, what's the word I'm looking for? There's two sides to, to mm -hmm. this uh, female empowerment, bringing, like, really just unlocking the potential and the incredible contribution of females in the workforce. 
but it also comes with we're having these conversations because we know that things haven't been equal so what bias does that what what's the 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 bias the stuff the baggage that's actually fueling the conversation yeah and i mean from, from personal experience i i'll never forget when um when my first book launched it was in 2018 i was under 30 and i sat on a panel discussion about my own book with a two prof- two professors a doctor and my co-author who was he's a brilliant human a guy who is significantly older than me and there was me a sub 30 woman sitting on a panel in a business school filled in a room filled with honors masters prof- uh, professors doctor doctors and i have my undergrad i've not studied formally further and like the entire time we were having that uh, conversation it was me and my imposter syndrome totally sharing that seat and i got out of that conversation that um, panel discussion and i kind of went to the bathroom and had a very stern talking to with myself and i was like look the you know my imposter syndrome is going to be coming with me probably for most of my career because that just is what it is maybe at some point it'll shrink but right now my imposter syndrome is with me. My, I'm a woman in this field. I'm young. What, what magic do I really have to contribute? But I just at that point kind of decided to make it my friend, bring it with yeah. me. It's allowed in the room with me. It's absolutely allowed to sit in the room with me, but it needs to take a seat, sit down, shush, and let me do my thing. Yeah, yeah. When it, and imposter syndrome in and of itself is one of those things. Um, do do some of us only suffer from it because the world tells us women have imposter syndrome versus do we actually have it? Like, is it a new ghost following us around that we do or do not have? I, um, I don't, I don't know what this says about me. Um, but I always felt very like, I'll use the Dan Pink phrase, right? Um, cause I, for whatever reason, I learned about Dan Pink's autonomy, mastery, and purpose, and that whole concept of pay people enough money to take the issue of money off the table before I learned about I might be underpaid and unfairly compensated as a woman. So like I, it didn't even occur because the issue of money was off the table. It never occurred to me. I might be unfairly compensated. So it's, it's just sort of strange how I'm going to, going to just in this maybe controversial, like, you know, old white men tell us we have these problems that maybe we don't have all the time. Yes. <laughs> I love that. I mean, because your framing for the gender payment conversation is completely different than to possibly my framing. And Oh, I love that. And you know, the, are we, do we feel things because we legitimately feel them is, or do we, that are they things that live in the space because they're legitimately there or are they there because we talk about them so much that they kind of arrive in the space. Yeah. And how do we slow down enough to decide for ourselves what is real and what is not like just because the system, and I'm meaning like not system technology system, but like the system, the global complexity we live in reveals something new. So we have new cognitive awareness of something. Um, 
how do we preserve that power of choice of what to do with this new information? Do I let it hold me back? Do I harness it? Do I use it in, in what sort of way? Or it's like, that's actually not useful for me. I'm just going to set that aside and keep going. Totally. I think play with it. The only yeah. thing you can do is play with it. Like you get this new scary batch of information and it's like, okay, what actually is this? Let's see, like, what are the moving parts to it? And, you know, doing a little bit of a healthy dissection of what is this thing? Yep. Which parts of it are meaningful for me? Which parts of it are scary? Cool. Hello, scary things. Let's be friends. Like you can join us in the room. You can hang out in the room with us. And then what's not relevant, put it aside. But I think that having the conversations is absolutely the starting point for all of this because acknowledging have the conversation and see what unfolds. Yeah, there's something in your talk that for whatever reason in this moment feels like it connects. And that is um, how do we address things like this in ways that are action oriented versus motion oriented? Because you can be in the motion and the chaos and the doing of stuff, the being busy, but it's not actually moving us in an action-oriented direction towards something. So how, when we are living in this environment of constant change and new information hitting us about ourselves as human beings around the, the thing that is our business from a product and service perspective or changes in our culture, so like what's happening around and on our business, like all of this chaos and VUCA out there keep distinguishing between action and motion? I think the action motion conversation is also a comfort impact conversation. Mm -hmm. So the idea of action versus motion, it comes from James Clear's Atomic Habits. And he defines, you know, no, he defines that it's really important to know when you're in motion versus when you're in action. Uh, motion is speaking to a personal trainer action is doing 10 squats. Motion is researching writing tips. Action is writing 10 sentences for your blog post. Um, motion is saying that I need to be more grateful. Action is actually calling up your, your loved one and saying, I love you, I'm very grateful to have you in my life or writing them a note. So the motion is the comfortable stuff. Motion is the acknowledging that I need to do this thing but action is the impact stuff. Action is actually doing the thing. And so often with these conversations, like what we've just been talking about, like the complexity of the world of work, it's hard. It's a lot to sink our teeth into. It's daunting. So it's very easy to get ourselves stuck in motion and conversing, talking, looking, thinking about it. But it's the shift into action is really where change starts to happen, where we start to show up differently. We start to run our businesses differently. We start to treat people differently. Um, action is supposed to be uncomfortable. It's supposed to be daunting. It's supposed to be the kind of thing that you, as you're walking to that starting line, you want to just turn and run in the other direction. Um, but action is also the thing that creates impact and that's meaning lives in action it doesn't live yeah. in motion yeah i it i didn't connect it then but it, it, at the conference but i'm connecting it now around the 12th agile principle right at regular intervals we pause in order to reflect on what it is we could 
be doing differently in order to improve. That reflection in and of itself, like a good retrospective, isn't the revealing of all the things that we're already doing well and that we could be doing differently. It is the movement to action of what are we actually in this next sprint or on whatever it is, cadence or, or, or approach we're using, that we're actually going to do differently yep. in order to improve, which to bring us back to the beginning of the conversation, maybe dropping a tool that we've held as a tight belief Totally. in order to move forward. Yes. Yeah. There was one other topic that we know we wanted to address today, and I, I know we're getting really short on time, but I just I want to give you a chance to bring this up because I know it's important for you. This concept of trust default settings, which, yes. which is a little bit of a comma saves lives for me. Is it trust default settings or is it trust default settings like what what did let's just define that phrase because depending on how i hear it i can make up a lot of different stories <laughs> so it's checking check your trust default settings so what are the default settings for how you trust okay yeah yeah so why is that important why is that important because trust is the we call, used to call it the force field or the container of trust Trust is the thing that all experience lives inside of. And when there is no trust, everything else just falls apart. Um, and as human beings, we all have a very complex trust style. We talk a lot about psychological safety in organizations, uh, trusting people, making people feel trusted. But what we don't often do is stop and think about your default settings for trust. Mm. And we either default to trust or we default to distrust. Neither one is right or wrong. And often they're just a product of who we are, our experiences and how we're wired as individuals. But if you're somebody who naturally defaults to trust, you're going to believe that people can be left alone to get it done. You're going to show up with full um, trust, full understanding, full kind of uh, go take the reins and go be amazing. But if you're somebody who defaults to distrust, you're going to be erring on the side of micromanaging and staying very closely involved and wanting to handhold all the way through because you don't think that they could do it without you if left alone. And it's not bad if if, if you're kind of listening to this going, uh -huh, that second one resonates with me a bit more and I default to distrust. It's not a bad thing. It's just how you're wired. But once you know, you can't unknow. And then you have the immense, I'm going to say it again, privilege of choosing to not let your trust default settings become a problem for other people's experience. So I don't naturally default to trust. I'm just not wired that way. But I don't make that anybody else's problem. Because I know that my default is going to impact the way that I show up, I can be very conscious about how I show up, how I communicate, how I um interact and the experiences that I create with other people, other people so that they feel trusted in the process. So there's there, there, a big self-management piece there. There is. It's like, I want to, I just wrote down the, the timestamp about 3330 trust. Like there's a snippet in there that it's like, I just want us to pull out of this episode because it's like, you're not an agilist by default, right? You're really much like more of a, you told me uh, as we were prepping to record today, like 
I didn't find Agile, Agile found me. And I think it should be so obvious for our listeners how, while we've not really talked about anything directly in the sphere of Agile, I've made some of those references. Like, it's not there, but this is, all of this is about Agile and agility and the values and the principles of it. But the, the what you said was so, so important. I realize I am not wired for trust and it's my responsibility to not make that your problem. Yeah. Like hundred percent period end. let's print that on temporary tattoos and have every leader and executive in the world have them like on the back of their hand. So they see it you know, every single day. Yes. Let's just put it on all execs foreheads so that when they're sitting in their exec meetings, they're they, reading it. All they see each foreheads. other. Yes. That's even yeah. better. That's even better. <laughs> um, Andy, we could keep going for forever and ever and ever today. I feel like, um, and I don't want to keep you too long. So thank you for being with us and sharing your wisdom with um, our listeners. I got two questions that'll help round us out for today. Shoot. All right. First, what are you geeking out on uh, that might inspire our listeners to go do some of their own study in, in research and professional development? I'm totally geeking out on behavioral economics at the moment and the economics of human experience design. Cool. And then what is there any specific podcast, blog, book or anything that you would or, you know, thought leader that you want to suggest for folks? There's Cass Sunstein and Nudges, which is uh, incredibly well known. And I'm actually just busy taking a sort of edX course on behavioral economics because I love the mental models and the theories around it. And there's so many of them because it's an actual scientific study. But there's, yeah, there's an amazing newsletter called um, The Behavioral Scientist, which I strongly recommend because they just have a host of super fascinating articles in every episode so yes i will i will park it there perfect perfect all right and then what final wisdom do you want to share with anyone today there's a saying and please forgive me if i butcher the saying but in the space between stimulus and um no you know what i'm not actually going to go with that one i'm going to go with a different one I think that the final wisdom that I would want to leave is that don't forget that you have a choice. Yeah. Don't forget that you have a choice. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Andy, you had a choice as to whether or not to accept the invitation to come be on an episode of the Women in Agile podcast. And I am so glad you made the choice to say yes. Thank you for being here with me today. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. This was a super fun conversation. Great. I think so too. And I hope our listeners feel like it is uh, for them to listen to. Thanks again. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Women in Agile podcast. It's brought to you in partnership from the Women in Agile nonprofit organization and scrum.org. We hope you've learned something new and invite you to tell a friend or a coworker about the podcast. And as always, you can go online to womeninagile.org to learn more about our initiatives and find additional inspiring podcast conversations.